Our Old Testament and our New Testament readings for the day are in reverse order yet again this week as our sermon text will be based on the Genesis 32 passage. So we'll hear first from Paul's letter to the Romans in the ninth chapter. It's the opening five verses. And I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as Paul writes, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. The Old Testament reading for this morning is from the 32nd chapter of the first book, Genesis, beginning at verse 22 and continuing through verse 31. I invite you once again to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. The same night, he, Jacob, got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. A couple of weeks ago now, we read about the night that Jacob, fleeing to Haran, laid his head down in Luz. And during the night, he had a vision of angels ascending and descending between the realm of earth and the realm of heaven. And when he awoke... He set up a memorial to that place, which he ever after referred to as Bethel, or House of God. And as we read this morning, uh, an excerpt of his return trip back from Haran, as now he has gathered to himself two wives and two maids and a, a bunch of possessions in caravans full of animals. He's headed home to the area of the Negev, 
a couple of days journey south of Jerusalem, he's now given his brother's anger at the loss of his birthright uh, a generation and more to subside. Whereas before he was traveling light and fast, now Jacob is encumbered with all this sorts of stuff that greatly slows his progress. Word has reached him that his passage south has been detected by Esau, his brother, and that he has mustered a formidable force to greet him. To mollify his brother, Jacob sends out all he has, gift upon gift, and his maids and his wives. Go ahead of me and um, make sure everything's okay before I meet my brother. With the caravans now headed toward Esau, Jacob beds down beside a small seasonal waterway, and before perhaps he drifts off, or maybe right after, uh, he has another encounter. And this time uh, with a man who wrestles with him all night long. Now, I'll admit <clears throat> that I, I find this story a, a bit perplexing, but I have to give credit to the authors and the editors of the Old Testament that they would choose to keep such a story as this preserved, presumably, in very much the same way that they first heard it, unusual as it may be. This, it turns out, is a pivotal, pivotal, can't talk this morning, moment in the history of God's people as this is our first introduction to the name Israel. That's what Jacob would be known as subsequent to his nocturnal struggle with this messenger from God. Interesting, isn't it? The fact that on the way out of Dodge, Jacob renames a place where he has this vision of rising and falling angels. And then on his way back in, Jacob himself gets renamed by God. Since his encounter with the divine there beside the Jabbok, Jacob is changed. He requested and was granted yet another blessing, which wasn't so different from that which he conned from his father, but he is also the recipient of a fresh wound and of a fresh name, and I would argue of a new identity on account of this encounter with God's heavenly servant. This change was not one of Jacob's making. He did not initiate this encounter. He was that evening in a precarious position of his own making, likely preoccupied with worry over whether his caravans of bribes would be sufficient to appease the older brother whom he had wronged when this wrestler approached. Though I would wager not many of us have been in the same situation, whatever our particular circumstances are, when we encounter God, we are ever after changed. In our strand of Protestantism, 
the Reformed confessional tradition, we make provision for baptism of people of any age, from, from cradle to grave, or just before, that is. This is because we understand the sacrament as being initiated by God, not by man, like this encounter of Jacob's. And as a result of this encounter, Jacob emerges with a new name, signifying this change that is taking place in him. And so it is during the baptism, when during the litany, the minister asks the individual or the parents or the guardian, what is the name of the one to be baptized? And the response includes the first and the middle names, not the surname. And this is intentional and intended to make a theological point. Though the church doesn't issue a certificate with a, with a different last name on it, and while we in this tradition don't issue a, a baptismal name like some traditions do, uh, what we're trying to do is to, to point out that the baptized is joining now with a community of fellow brothers and sisters who are all known as the children of God. This is the new identity that we receive in baptism, in a mystical encounter with the Spirit sent by God to meet us in the waters of that place. Now, following Jacob's encounter with this stranger from God, he was left changed in another way as well, not just in name, but also he was changed in appearance. It was immediately evident to any who beheld him that something had happened to him. Uh, so it should be with us, maybe not as traumatically as with Tom this week in breaking his leg, but something should happen to us that we would be recognizably different. We've been given a new name and a new identity. These, these are the things that we know of. And unless we share this knowledge with people, there are little secrets. Our outward appearance, though, well, that's harder to hide. We can disguise it, perhaps, but we can't hide it. And as long as Jacob, now Israel, remained seated, well, no one would have known. But the moment he stood, his infirmity would have been obvious to those around. And this is also, I believe, how it should be with all those who bear the new name of Christ. Having been claimed by Jesus, we should bear visible witness, not necessarily in, in the form of stigmata, uh, marks on our hands and our feet or our side or our forehead, but in the way that we comport ourselves, in what we say and what we do as well. Samuel Taylor Coleridge once commented, Christianity is not a theory or a speculation, but a life. Not a philosophy of life, but a living presence. Jacob received a new name, something that he knew, but which could not be seen by anyone else, and he received a new gait. And that would have been characteristically unique, making him 
easily identifiable as Israel. To bring this home, I wonder what makes us unique, easily identifiable as Christians. Yes, you can find some of us gathering for worship on a Sunday morning in a sanctuary much like this. But what about the rest of the time? Is it the the vinyl clings or the magnets that we adorn our cars with? Or the t-shirts and the hats that we wear saying, make the church great again? Or does it go beyond stickers and slogans? Can folks catch sight of us from afar and soon begin to recognize us as followers of Jesus? Perhaps it's worth remembering what Jesus did that distinguished him from the other prophets and the self-proclaimed messiahs of his day. For he taught his disciples to, to go and do likewise. And as far as I know, that commission of his has yet to be rescinded or altered. Healing, feeding, clothing, visiting, all the sorts of things that Jesus did for the people of his day, those are the sorts of things that one could say amount to compassion. Displaying compassion is a way of life that can be seen and can be recognized from afar. We are the recipients of unmerited compassion. This has come from our God, and it comes to us freely. And when we engage in our own acts of compassion toward others, we are showing our gratitude for what we've already been gifted. And we're giving the world a glimpse of the sorts of people we are becoming thanks to God at work in us. Each week, as part of our time together in worship, we take a moment or two to hear stories about the mission of the church and how it is being carried out in special ways by a variety of individuals and organizations. This isn't universally the case, but the vast majority of weeks, we hear updates from one of our many ministry partners who are involved in performing acts of compassion for folks here on the shore, throughout the country, and even across the globe. Recipients of their charitable works are witnessing for themselves what it looks like to see followers of Christ at work. One recent example comes from part of this morning's Moment for Mission from the Outreach Foundation, who've been providing humanitarian assistance since the outbreak of hostilities in Ukraine now a year and a half ago. A Ukrainian seminary leader in that country um, had this to say about the work that they've been doing there. He said, when this war started, all we had was ourselves, our bodies, our hands. We had nothing to give. Because of you, we have been able to give food, warmth, shelter, God's word, and be the face of Jesus. When everyone wondered, where is God? He concludes by saying, thank you. 
People in the war-torn country have been able to see Jesus in the work and witness of his devoted followers. Compassion like this does not come naturally as by default people are putting themselves above others. My wants, my needs, my desires, they come first. If there's anything left over, I, I might share that. There's nothing new about any of this. We see the same in the story of Jacob. Fortunately for him, though, God looked past all that in his divine compassion. And he expunged his record when he gave him a new name and a new identity. And this is still the way that God works. With the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the compassion of this same God has been magnified and multiplied and the floodgates of his reconciling and forgiving and redemptive powers have opened to innumerable more people than ever before, even unto us. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, who have been and are being formed into new creations, I invite us to release our old self-centered identity and to embrace the new one our Savior has authored for us. May we, who now bear that precious name of Jesus, be conformed more and more to that compassionate image, one of forgiveness, peacemaking, humility, sacrifice, gratitude, and joy, such that those who see us might know that we're not the same, not the same as the world, not the same as we once were, but called to be different people who go by different names, bestowed upon us by the one who we are pledged to follow and emulate, the one who makes all things new. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.